0: Walking Each Other Home is an exploration of the many ways we cultivate wisdom, compassion, and love in our lives. Mirabai Bush talks with some of her many diverse friends about what they're learning now from their spiritual paths and practices. If you would like to support this podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Mirabai.
1: Hi, everyone. This is Mirabai and walking each other home. This is uh, walking each other home is um, all the disparate uh, conversations on this channel are held together by the idea that um, we're all walking our own paths, each unique, um, but we really can help each other. In fact, we need each other. In fact, we are not separate from each other. You know, Bill, said something about, um, you know, the ar- the artificial separation created by skin. I thought <laughs> that was good. Um, but um, we need each other in order to uh, do this grand project of waking up and coming to love everyone and serve everyone. So um, I've been engaging really diverse people in conversations about what's helping them wake up and then what they can share with the rest of us. And today, um, I have here, uh, two wonderful people. Um, Bill Duane blends, um, 12 years at Google and 10 years of consulting and everywhere in healthcare, manufacturing, finance, media, neuroscience, um, Team effectiveness, mindfulness. He's writing a book on innovation now. Um, And we first knew each other at Google. Um, In I started there in 2007 or eight, which now is really ancient history, especially in tech time. Um, When I was working with uh, Meng, Jade Meng Tan, and Norman Fisher to develop this um, program, we. called Search Inside Yourself. It was Google's mindfulness-based emotional intelligence uh, program that many, many people at Google um, uh, took, went through, learned from. Um, So we met then and loved each other. And now he's working with um, Lisa Solomonova at, I love this, the Center for in the Center for the Study of Apparent Selves, which is anchored in Kathmandu, uh, and they're asking questions like: Can being aware, can being aware of the illusion of self, augment an agent's affordances? Um, a word I. Wasn't comfortable. Didn't don't usually use. So it means the quality or property of an object that defines its possible uses or makes clear how it can or should be used. So becoming aware of um, the illusion of self um, can it augment an agent's affordances. And then the subtitle is Integrating Buddhist Philosophy, Cognitive Science and Artificial Life. And that's what we're gonna talk about today. Lisa teaches in the Department of Psychiatry at McGill. And um and <laughs> we're gonna talk about we started the conversation saying um uh people are really interested in compassion and AI. And um One thing that made a lot of sense in early conversations to me is about why Buddhism and and, um, AI, that to design minds, you have to understand your own. And the Buddhist practices that I've been doing for many years have been such a direct route to, in as much as I do, understanding my own mind. So um, I was very interested in this. So let's start with Bill would you define AI most people think of robots or Siri or Alexa or just functions like visual recognition or or something i came upon online robots as therapists how people like them and many people prefer them to humans as therapists. Oh my God. Um, and so tell us, what are we really talking about when we talk about
2: AI? Well, I think uh first of all, thank you for, for having me. I, I loved the uh, the introduction and it feels like it would it would not be appropriate to start without uh an expression of gratitude, you know, the way that you framed this conversation as helping each other walk paths. Um, this path and this conversation and my involvement with Lisa and the center um, and all this work and even most of my practice can be traced back to my exposure to uh, these practices uh, in Search Inside Yourself and uh, MBSR. Um, so without a doubt, without you, I would not be sitting in these chairs <laughs> thinking these <That's> thoughts. Great. <laughs> um, so I really want to start off with an expression of, uh, of, uh, of gratitude. Um, and so I think, I think the reason why it's important to define AI is, uh, you know, in, in popular discourse, when we talk about AI, we're talking about a lot of really different things. And I think it's important to have a little bit of specificity. So I'll offer some comparisons of different things we mean when we talk about AI that might be supportive of this conversation, um, so generally, when we talk about AI, we think about either, if you're the optimistic sort, the Star Trek computer, <laughs> um, or if you're the pessimistic sort, um, Skynet from the Terminator movies, uh, some highly advanced uh, technology that thinks and can interact with us in substantially similar ways that we would uh, interact with another uh, conscious being, Um And really notably, is we are not there yet, there's there's even quite a bit of argument about uh, what would the path towards that look like, although things are moving very quickly. So it's important to note that when we think about that sort of entity, that sort of machine, it it doesn't exist yet. And there's a lot of people working very hard to sort of head in that direction. Um, What we are seeing are these huge leap forwards in um, machine learning or neural networks—different names for it—also called AI. Uh, but the nature of these is generally quite limited. They're 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 quite good at specific tasks, like winning Jeopardy, or driving a car, or identifying photographs, or um, identifying uh, tumors uh, on um, on radiography. Um, but there, it's quite it's quite narrow. It's quite siloed, uh, even though it's it's very interesting and amazing. And then. I think a lot of these conversations, particularly around ethics and intention, also come to, uh, you know, we, we might retroactively call things like the Google search engine um, AI, um, even though it's probably more properly viewed as, uh, as algorithms. So um, I just wanted to, to note that we're really talking about the way things exist now, but even more, we're leaning toward this space that doesn't exist yet. So therefore, there's lots of um, uncertainty and unknowns about it. But um, uh, all of us at the center think it's really important to think through ahead of time what that might be like. One is so that we can the outcomes are in line with what we want, and two is so that we as humans can really have this um, this knowledge about what's it like to think about beings that may have a different sensorium.
1: Mm. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> um well um yeah I, I would so the two things we're talking about are ai and compassion and i would simply say that compassion is as a buddhist understanding the ability to empathize with um another person's suffering um and within that is the desire or impulse to relieve that suffering So is that a good working definition for compassion for this conversation or?
3: Yeah, I, I, I suppose, I mean, for me, this is a, this is an aspirational project, right? Mm -hmm. So I am a, I'm a cognitive scientist. I'm a neuroscientist. So uh, a lot of work that I do right now has to do with theory of mind and empathy um, and potentially compassion. So, just as we don't have a very good compassion, and, uh, compassion model in science, uh, it just, it's only natural to turn to other traditions like Buddhism, which does have uh, complex, systematic, uh, you know, practical ways to generating certain kind of things. And, and for me, this, is, this project is, is aspirational, and it's also kind of looping back into understanding of, of our own minds you know, by by designing sort of minds, and I and I think it's a very kind of curious and interesting challenge to to integrate Buddhist philosophy into the potential. You know, what what kind of artificial artificial beings can we can we design, or can we um, embed within uh, certain kind of frameworks and taxonomies that come from Buddhist philosophy? Because in some way. Through Buddhist practices, that's what we do, right? We're trying to redesign our own minds uh, <laughs> now with, with certain forms of aspirations. Mm, that true, we take yeah. Them as Yeah, we take them as they are. We, we, we're using, we're engaging the perceptual, the sensory capacities that our minds already possess. However, we're trying to make them into something else. So in a way, it's kind of an interesting um, you know empirical question and uh, just a curious challenge as we design the minds that are sort of like ours uh, but also using insights from traditions that explicitly are uh focusing on redesigning our own minds like what 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 kind of beings could those be and um and in this and in this sense um looking kind of like narrowing narrowing down a little bit our our search in terms of looking at maybe things such as, you know um the idea of no self or collective selves right or selves not being not being uh, entirely uh just delim- delimited by our own brains and our own bodies right and and this idea is this idea is very prominent in, in buddhist philosophy also you know have their own kind of um mirror images and, and Western philosophy, particularly phenomenology, right? And the and theories of bodies cognition and collective intentionality. So there's a lot of things to look at. Uh, certainly, you know, cognitive science is now more and more recognizing the kind of socially interactive, uh, interpersonal nature of, of mm-hmm. minds.
1: Yeah. So,
3: you know, going from one body to many bodies, but may, then maybe many bodies into a more ecological view, you know, in terms of other forms of life, right? Yeah. Um, and this is, there's a lot of interest right now, certainly, um, in, in philosophy, but also in, in cognitive science and in um, and in humanities, looking at also non-human worlds. Uh, and so can we sort of playfully, empirically push it a little further into non-human worlds that also kind of exist because of us, <laughs> not just the ones that exist uh, despite of us?
1: Mm. Yes, <laughs> to all of that. And um, I... I really like thinking about designing our minds. I mean, in the Buddhist practices, you know, um, when... When I learned them and when I teach them, you know, they're the practices observing your mind just as it is, right? Uh, and then there's that other set of practices for cultivating compassion and loving kindness. And, and um, sometimes, you know, there'll be pushback from students who are saying, I thought we were just supposed to see things as they are. Why are we trying to change things, you know? And then there's always the conversation about that, you know, you can Um, increase your compassion. You can, you know, uh, deepen your loving kindness. Um, So, but I love the idea of designing our own minds. That's really good because that's what it is. It's great. Um, uh, Let's see. There's so much. Um, So, for AI to... Effectively support us humans and drive us toward a more meaningful existence. Um, it AI has to be designed with compassion at its core. Not, I mean, compassion in the designing of it, but also compassion built into that. How? how I don't know if you're at that level yet, but. And of course, I won't understand it really technically, but how do you do that? How do you build compassion into um, non-human beings?
2: Well, we're, we're taking a swing at it. And, um, you know, it's important to note that I think we all hold a lot of this work as translation work, uh, because we believe that there are concepts in Buddhism that are relevant to AI and vice versa, but they just sail right past each other because they seem like they're radically unrelated. And you bring up an important point of, you know, what would compassion, as Lisa described it, look like in a non-organic entity? And then your question is then how do you train it? So we're, we're currently in the middle of an interesting translation exercise to look at aspects of biology and evolution that then may inform a strategy. And one of the things that we're doing is when we're looking at suffering, you know, one of the, one of the translations of Dukkha is stress. And it's actually one I like a lot more than Mm. suffering Mm. because it covers a lot more subtle um, areas. Uh, And so in biology, you know, stress is you don't have what you think you need, right? This idea of homeostasis Uh, of, you know, even at its most simple level, uh, uh, a cell seeks the right kind of pH, the right temperature, the right sort of nutrients and environment for it to survive. And to the extent that those aren't, it exerts uh, effort and forces to get there, right? And so, um, you know, we can, we can look at this universal drive towards reaching this homeostasis um, and for me, you know, I think about my own practice and my own uh, issues, and I think, you know, for me, it's, you know, am I, am I choosing strategies that actually address the root cause or something, right? And so Buddhism, I think, has a, has a lot to say at it. So by adopting this idea of, of um, all creatures feel the need to reach homeostasis, and there's more or less successful ways of going about it. That's kind of a bridge from all of this wonderful work in the biological world about how entities evolve towards that, and also how they do that at different levels of organizations. We can talk about this drive from the cellular level. We can talk about it from an individual, I'm making air quotes, level, and also talk about it from a group or a society level. You know, um, so the question is then, how do you train that? And the one of the key things we're looking at is that if you you know, what's called a local optimization. If you're trying to solve for I, me, mine, you can come up with a solution that may end up being harmful in the medium or the long-term, either to the environment that you're in or the individual. Uh-huh. So if we could train a being, being human or, or sorry, organic or non-organic, to cast its view of what do I care about to be wider and therefore, would view the impacts of its decisions as not well. I'm helping myself, but hurting others. But if you expand that circle of care a little bit, then you say, "Well, I'm hurting myself," which speaks to, you know, the Dalai Lama's point of, uh, you know, being kind is just an enlightened form of selfishness. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. You're taking care of your of yourself. So, what we're thinking about is that how might we increase the perception? and intention of a being so that that circle is wider and therefore it pursues strategies of alleviating stress um, that's more of a, a global optimization versus local. And so uh, even though it seems a little tortured to talk about it in those you know nerd terms, mm. we're then hopefully creating a bridge by which we can look at all of these things from evolutionary biology. Um, and of course, one of the interesting things about uh, code and computers is that you can collapse many, many different generations quickly, so we can actually test these amongst what, in human terms, would be ten thousand lifetimes and have that yeah. chunk through in a fairly short amount of time
0: mm.
1: that 's really helpful to hear i mean when with my simple first response of you know one one of the ways that we train um, or uh, compassion in people is to have them do the just like me practice where, you know, you're looking at another person or you bring somebody to mind and you recognize that uh, just like me, this person suffers and doesn't want to suffer, wants to be happy. Um, and uh, so anything I can do to relieve that suffering because this person's just like me. But yeah. So like how, how you teach um, an artificial intelligence to that that humans would be just like me just like what what pronouns do you use for AI? <laughs> they no doubt <laughs> um, yeah, it's all kind of... I love it because it just expands the mind so wide, um, so much wider than most things. That most things I come across in my life, I can, with a little study, I can understand them, you know. Um, but uh, this is so great because you really have to open your mind very wide to think about it. Um, so, um, let's see. Lisa, I saw that at that Center for the Study of Apparent Selves, which I love, you are taking these most foundational teachings of, of Buddhism, impermanence, dependent origination, interconnection of all life, and asking about their connection or value for AI. That's what we've been saying. But can, like, could AI understand cause and effect? Which is so essential to understanding these other concepts.
3: Well, I, I'm not so certain if humans are very good at understanding <laughs> <effect> either. <laughs> <You're> great. <laughs> so, so, I mean, I guess I'm both optimistic and also. <laughs> Kind of like, well, <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> <I guess. laughs> um, but um, yeah, some of the some of the interest here is really kind of taking just just kind of figuring out um, a way to talk about such things as, for example, selfhood. Right. So you know, um, what would it be like to to design a being that from the that doesn't have to unlearn the kind of um, individualistic mm. or, you know very very kind of uh, knee-jerk reaction you know view of oneself but 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 right away perhaps sees themselves as part of as part of more than one thing right uh, it's again it's an empirical question to me to me personally this this the center in this in this project is really you know we're trying to kind of envision envision something novel, but also while envisioning it, we're basically doing an experiment on our own thinking, right? We're using our thinking to conduct mm-hmm. experiments, but then we're also experimenting, you know, with the limits of our own of our own theories. Um, and so, um, so yeah. So in terms of how does how does one recognize cause and effect? Well, there's you know, there's there's advanced uh, specific techniques and things like machine learning, right? There's a lot of various forms of simulation, but but to me personally, what is really interesting is to see, um, is to see what happens if, if from the outset, a system is designed using specific uh, kinds of principles in mind, such as, for example, you know, um, you know, we are trying to work with the idea that intelligence, and in this case, you know, artificial intelligence, uh, can be. Can be basically understood as forms of care, right? And mm-hmm. and those those forms of care, you know, the idea of that that you mentioned before of compassion. This is this is at the higher level understanding of you know the compassion is higher level understanding of care. And we're mm-hmm. trying to kind of work it up from like simple things, like just you know maybe affective non indifference to oneself first, right? Like, uh, some organisms don't want to die right <laughs> <laughs> don't like being stressed don't mm-hmm. like being hurt right it doesn't mean that they have any other forms of care but at the very least they have some kind of it's they 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 kind of bothered you know by the idea of their own mortality all right great so moving up from there moving up from there what happens was when an organism is bothered by the idea of mortality of other organisms just like itself right and then, then you can start thinking about, you know, other forms of care, such as, let's say, of course, we're using metaphors, right? And, and in a way, we're using these Buddhist terms as metaphors, right? Uh, and certainly, I my role in the project is to is to bring in perspectives from cognitive science, neuroscience, ecology. So certainly, when a being starts, starts caring about other beings, you can think about, you know, animals and their offspring, right? What happens? Like, what happens when... When, when, when one develops of care for their, for their little ones, right? And then, of course, then that also feeds back into the very basic ideas of like, okay, but is it even possible for a being that is embedded in the social world of, let's say, its own species, is it possible for that being to even ever conceive of oneself as being separate?
1: This idea of becoming, um, well, either of you could answer this, this idea of becoming a bodhisattva agent, And I think you said much of our current thinking focuses on the notion of a bodhisattva agent, a hypothesized artificial agent that evolves toward optimal cooperative behavior based on recognizing the shifting and at times uh, unintuitive nature of beings and their contexts. So what about that? And how... What would it look like in a Bodhisattva agent? I know, Bill, you talked to me about this when we first started talking about
2: all of this. Yeah, I'll start and then Lisa can uh, can correct and, uh, and uh, add on uh, from there. So earlier we were speaking about what is care and compassion and how might that show up in different contexts, in a human context, in a non-human context. And we talked about this idea of um, expanding your scope of what you care about. You know, Lisa before when she was talking, was um, talking about shifting from an individual to a community standpoint and looping back to the very beginning of the podcast you know, is that question is, does that give us affordances? Does that actually improve our ability to come up with, with solutions? So, um, you know, one of the ways that one can study this is via artificial life where you actually code a universe with a set of rules for survival and sustenance and then different beings within it that operate according to some code or heuristics. So for instance, One of our colleagues, Olaf Witowski, did one that showed that um, cooperation can actually emerge in these populations without being explicitly programmed. So when we talk about an AI agent, we're talking about sort of a a construct that exists within uh, one of the phrases that I've heard in the artificial life uh, sphere is called a toy universe. Um, So when we were thinking about that concept combined with some of the things from the earlier conversation, we thought, well, you know, one of the ways of expanding care in the Buddhist traditions is this notion in the Adriana Mahayana traditions of of the Bodhisattva vow. And the Bodhisattva vow is, it's infinite. It sets, it's a vow of setting the intention well beyond your sensorium. Beings are Mm -hmm. endless.
1: Yes.
2: (laughs) Right? And so,
1: you know, like the nerve
2: rationalist part of me, I've always felt grumpy about that, being like, it doesn't make any sense. But if you think about it from this perspective, it is an intentional setting of intention beyond your own sensorium, beyond your own current ability to influence things. So there's that idea of setting the vow. Our curiosity is if we were to program one of these AI agents to expand its its care infinitely and then some sort of training regimen to have its actions match its intentions in each generation a little bit more and a little bit more. Could we think of that as a a bodhisattva agent? And then one of the nice things about this idea of toy universes is you can let that run for 10,000 generations. Does that create... Um, an entire universe of bodhisattva beings? And wow. what are sort of the things that encourage it or discourage it? What works? What what doesn't work? And then if we want to get sassy, we can also have uh, in, in, in computer science, there's this idea of an antagonist load. So if you want to run a system, you run the software on the system. But of course, real life means that other things are going on too. So you might have another separate system trying to get at those resources too, called an antagonistic load. So that got me thinking like maybe we have a Mara agent in there too and see how they slug it out Um, and to see how, uh, you know, just just for us to have a feel Mm -hmm. of it again, this is an abstraction. This is a toy universe. It's a radical oversimplification. But might that then tease out things that are important and that work? And then even though we're talking about a toy universe, I have this idea of almost like, a porthole in it where humans could watch and learn from it. And Mm. certainly one of the things that I think is the most intellectually interesting, but also in terms of my, my own heart and my own practice is thinking about the issues of like, okay, if we, if we think about the concept of compassion or Karuna described in the, in the suttas as the the quiver of the heart Mm -hmm. in relationship to uh, suffering. Well, okay. But what if you didn't literally have a heart? And of course, you know the heart is a metaphor for our emotional yeah. state. What would it be like if you didn't see with your eyes or feel with your skin, or as Lisa was pointing to before, where your sense of self didn't stop at your skin? What if your primary drives in in, rela- in, in relation to suffering weren't fight, flight, freeze? What if a being had a different set of real basic mm-hmm. survival heuristics? Just even watching that, what could we learn about our own? It reminds me of, you know, Oliver Sacks' work, where we only learn about how our mind works when part of it breaks, and it breaks in ways that are really interesting, that highlight things that are so much a feature of our of our lives and our awareness that we don't notice them. or like fish in water. So for me, thinking about how might this be for machines, uh, I've found it really deeply um, challenging in the good way for my own practice standpoint?
1: Mm. Well, hmm. help me with this. The Bodhisattva vow, which is essentially uh, suffering is boundless, limitless. I vow to end it. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. As you were saying, it's beyond what we could possibly do, but we take that vow. Um, knowing that and at the same time working as if we could um, but the, um, the the work the spiritual work to be able to do that is to come to is to do all the um, practices to come into full realization right wisdom and compassion so that you then, Uh, could bring that to the work of saving all beings from suffering. So when you're um, looking at an artificial intelligence who now knows and can hold that um, beings are numberless and nevertheless (laughs) I'm going to relieve suffering for all of them, but how does the um, how does the wisdom that um, we humans have to work so hard to cultivate and realize? How does that get into the um, into the artificial intelligence? I don't know if that's the right verbs to use, but.
3: Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's exactly it. That's exactly the challenge. I I find it um, I find it uh, very interesting and, and playful to have this like paradoxical aspirational AI that knows that it's never going to be able to do what it vows to do. Right? It's like like a bodhisattva vow? Like you know, it's just not going to happen. It's a it's a poetic aspiration. It's a form of orientation towards towards the world. You know, like we're not actually going mean, to. It's been a running joke in our in our group that uh, I'm a bad Buddhist because you know because I I think I I, I can't actualize my bodhisattva so <laughs> vow, but <laughs> but I kind of feel like I probably won't. I know um, that the bad but
1: Buddhist that, the, yeah, that, that could be a character uh, in something.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's other yes, than I, life. I, I yeah, fully. <laughs> Fully embrace the the, the bad the bad Buddhist uh, <laughs> uh, view of myself, but uh, yeah. So the aspirational kind of AI, but also just even even less aspirational kind of going back to the idea of wisdom, right? Like the, this is like this is something that one might might envision in, in sort of you know the de- de- general AI design in the sense that uh, you know at the very minimum um, it will have to do with the idea of what counts as good outcome, right? Like, when when a system has a problem to solve, you know, let's say, you know, with time and computational capacities, more and more information can be taken into consideration at a time, right? Um, so, just, just yesterday, I had a conversation about this with, with a good friend of mine, kind of, like, trying to figure out, like, what would it look like, right? And, and, we, and we, we were thinking about all sorts of paradoxical scenarios, like, for example, Google Maps, okay? Like uh, right now, the idea is you got to get faster to where you're going. It seems very straightforward, right? All right, that's that, that's great. You know, taking into account traffic, weather, fine. That's that's great. However, what about uh, a situation where an AI would realize that sitting in traffic is good for you? It's going to make you slow down. You're gonna have more conversations with your family while you're in a car on the way to school, you know. Will that will that then result in in the <laughs> in the compassionate AI, letting us sit in traffic for longer? Or maybe sitting in traffic is great because we're gonna get increasingly frustrated and abandon cars and get, you know, get on bikes. <laughs> that is that, is that you know, because mm-hmm. when we started this conversation, you referred to this paper we're trying to write about augmenting affordances. And the idea of affordances comes from um what's the domain that's known as ecological psychology and and the idea is that the the objects and things in the world they call out for our attention right and that's that's based on our on the way that our bodies and mind are developed you know through throughout our history right so mm-hmm. you know very kind of simple ways chairs are for sitting cups are for drinking right because they're designed in a certain way we recognize that our bodies are attuned to those things right tree maybe for climbing lake will be for swimming uh, Etc. And of course, you know, these affordances are physical, but they also, you know, they're also cultural, right? You know, a chair is for sitting, but the throne is for sitting, but maybe not for you. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, a door is for opening, but the door that says, you know, um, the Dean of McGill maybe is not for me, right? So it's like we, we, we learn more complex forms of affordances. They become also, you know, cultural, contextual. Uh, you know, maybe the throne is for sitting when nobody's looking. You know, uh, so in other words, we're always in some kind of conversation with ourselves, mm-hmm. with the way that we're enculturated in in the world, not only on physical level, but also on, you know, on again more than one person, right, level. Um, and so, and so, yeah. So, so, so the idea here, the kind of challenge, was that okay, well. If if the idea of no self is, or at least you know, no soul itself, or no, you know, mm-hmm. no constantly unchanging self is so central and so important in Buddhism. And it's it's pretty important in you know developmental psychology, yeah. and cognitive science, neuroscience, etc., um, if those ideas are really you know pointing to something fundamental about what 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 human mind is and what it can be, um, how can we then um, like what would happen if 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 an artificial system would kind of come to that realization faster, and then what kind of outcome would kind of you know what, what kind of information, as you're mentioning in the idea of wisdom, would be counted as desirable outcome? You know, is it really just about getting getting to work faster, or maybe the system takes into account like mm. the idea, oh you know, the faster people get to work, the more hours they spend at work, the faster they burn out, the less time they have to I don't know, listen to your podcast, right?
2: Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, uh, that makes me think. So, uh, uh, a dear friend of mine is an artist. I'm an engineer. When we're walking from point A to point B, I would be like, Well, let's go this way. And she would say, Well, I think we should go this way. I'd be like, Well, and she, she'd been hanging around with Google engineers long enough. She was, said, Pray tell, in which way is your way more optimal? And I said, It's shorter. And she would say, Mine's prettier. Right. And, (laughs) you know, it was uh, it was great fun. And it speaks to what Lisa was was pointing to is this question of what are you optimizing for? Yeah. So part of the reason why we we enjoy doing this work and we hope that it might be useful and important is a lot of these systems right now. What are they optimizing for is something that's that's fairly narrow and specific and generally uh, driven by concerns around time to market. Those kinds of things, and you know, that's that, that's a powerful draw. It's a powerful sense of energy that propels things, uh, propels action. Um, but going back to the idea of the bodhisattva AI valve, so you know, we have this idea that people are are creating these narrow sets of what does optimal mean in order to move quickly, but that results in all of these unintended consequences. Perhaps echoing back to your questions before around karma or unintended consequences. So we believe that even though it invites more complexity in the short term, widening the scope of care and concern um, actually leads to these global outcomes and therefore could actually be a form of of hyper-intelligence. And just to echo back to the very beginning, we're now starting to describe the qualities of something that doesn't exist yet. So there's a lot of uh, hypotheticals going on, but we think this idea of increasing that, that, that sense of care is actually an affordance. It would actually help, although in the short term it's complicated.? right? Most of these people are choosing a narrow definition of what does optimal need because it's faster. We hope that it's a function that, that it's a forcing function if you cast the net wider, of care and concern that that will actually lead to hyperintelligence because you'll come up with better solutions Uh, because uh, if you just, you know, it's almost like manufacturing and uh, pollution. If you just say, well, if we put it in the river, it's not our problem. (laughs) Well, you can (laughs) make things a lot easier, a lot less complicated, but then also sets things up for being a self-limiting situation.
1: That's great. I mean, just that just that question, what am I optimizing for? I mean, we could use that many times every day and learn from it. You know, it just stops you to think. I mean, it's basically what are your values, but it's better for kind of everyday things like, why are you choosing that route home? That's really good. I mean, we just a few minutes left, but, uh, what else about this mix of, of compassion and AI or Buddhism and, and AI that, um, since you've both been thinking about it so much, um, I don't know. What else do you think would be illuminating for like our everyday lives right now? Like I loved that question. What are you optimizing for? Um, And I love that you know the idea that yes, we can hold the truth that we can't save all beings, but actually, that could really be um, programmed in. I don't you know, in into artificial intelligence where um, uh, that could be a say a a driver or just a. An uh an affordance. (laughs) I want to remember that word. But do you have any kind of last minute thoughts about other things like that? You're immersed all the time.
3: Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's I think that's exactly that this is like this is a thought experiment and potentially a real experiment also. Uh, you know, the kind of paradoxical intention and also paradoxical affordance. I mean, I think one thing that potentially the bodhisattva vow does for us bad Buddhists like myself, it kind of keeps us humble, you know. <laughs> like it's just I kind of yes, know I'm fail, yes. right? it mm-hmm. keeps me in check. It keeps me in check. You know, it keeps yeah. me it keeps me in check. It keeps me kind of like on the lookout, well maybe I'm wrong, you know, yes, this yes. way because I'm 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 just you know I I know I'm not gonna I'm probably not gonna do it. And I'm you know of course you now the danger here is to is to fall into some kind of nihilism and you know constant self doubt, but also doesn't have to be that way, right? So, so having and so having an an artificial system that that kind of you know potentially checks itself for for various values is one thing, right? And that's also knows that it's it's not you know it's not independent of other things. That's already kind of interesting anyway, and and certainly just like figuring out various different sort of values, right? Like what's like what kind of what kind of kind of productivity value is, is, is interesting in in this, in this sense, you know, is it getting there faster? Is it getting there with more beauty, right? Like there's, Mm -hmm. there's, there's a variety, there's a variety of things that, that we might think of as, as values and certainly in contemplative practice and also in just general cultural human life, right? It's, it's often not about the fastest or the, the most efficient or even, or even the best, you know, we often make decisions that seem very counterintuitive because they respond to some other needs.
1: Mm -hmm.
3: So can you have, can you have an artificial system that is open to other needs, you know, and Mm it is is potentially, you know, keeping itself in check and having this, you know, the idea of care, but also not necessarily knowing better. I think for me, this is, this is, these are all very, very interesting questions. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, looking at looking at the potential of designing other minds while we try to design our own in itself in itself is an interesting kind of exercise, right? Um, yes. <laughs> so yeah, using 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 certain certain kind of longstanding Buddhist ideas as, as some guiding metaphors, I think I think could be really illuminating in that sense. Mm.
1: Yeah. The, the whole process you've been describing is. Um, I spend a lot of time with people in higher ed talking about what contemplative knowing is. Arthur Zion, physicist, uh, wrote a book on contemplative knowing and how unlike um, uh, uh, critical thinking, rational thinking, where you put the object separate from you so that you see it for what it is and you're not contaminating the view by being involved in it. Uh, In contemplative knowing, you bring whatever it is, an idea or a person or an object, um, as close as you can. It it becomes intimate, and you know it in a different way. You know it in a contemplative way and a more holistic way. Um, And by learning about uh, the ways in which Artificial intelligence could hold compassion. You're looking into your own mind to discover the nature of that. That's really um, powerful and beautiful, I think. Yeah, and yeah.
3: and one one other thing just just came to mind in terms of you know what we can how we can apply it to to our own lives is like uh, you know the uh, classical academic joke. Uh, you know, have you read this book? It was like, well, no, I haven't even thought it yet. <laughs> <laughs> So 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 you know uh, and this That's is an exercise perfect. right this is mm-hmm. an exercise that yeah. we often do with students like if you want to understand something try to teach it Yes yes so, mm-hmm. so if we if we want to like again like me I'm I'm fundamentally a human scientist you know mm-hmm. and I'm fundamentally interested in understanding humans but for me, then the kind of amazing challenge is okay, well, great. Like we're talking about stuff like, you know, sense of self or agency or compassion or wisdom or notions that have their own cultural meanings within my own life. But, you know, try, try to explain it to a machine and maybe then I'll explain it better to myself, right? In terms of my yeah. academic work, but also my human life.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's great. Arthur, in talking about how this kind of knowing, involves bringing things very close, um, called it the epistemology of love. Mm. I was at an academic conference when he first used that phrase. It was at Columbia. And the whole place, everybody stood up and roared with applause. I said, this is the first example of the epistemologist as a rock star, (laughs) because he called it the epistemology of love. So that's what you're talking about. Bill, do you have any last things you'd like to add to all of this great jewel?
2: I think the epistemology of love is just too good a note to not end on. <laughs> I feel like whatever I say, it would just be like, yeah, that was interesting, I guess. But yeah, just sort of full, full stop of what do we mean, you know? just to echo Liza's thoughts, what do we, what do we mean when we say care? What do we mean when we say Mm -hmm. uh, action directed towards care? Um, And so in, you know, the translation of it from organic to non-organic beings and the non-organic beings are evolving at such a clip that even though they're not there yet, it's likely, Mm -hmm. maybe not likely, but possible. Within, within a lifetime or so, that, that they would be. And so I just think these are important questions to answer, not only from a defensive standpoint, um, but, you know, to, uh, to, to, to presence our, our colleague Olaf. You know, if, if a machine doesn't have its sense of self stopping at the skin like ours does, biologically, just based on our sensorium, but I'm sure there are lots of things that humans are going to end up being better at, you know, uh, talking about what, what Lisa said about the idea of communities and there's no such thing as a baby. What if a hundred years from now, people say there's no such thing as a human, right? Because the humans need to exist in their ecology. And what if that ecology includes
1: mm-hmm. other
2: beings that can augment, uh, you know, just, to you know, it's, it's, it, it feels a little vulnerable to be optimistic in that, you know, and I think it's important to not be naive about it. Um, but I do think there's a possibility of an augmentation where these, where different types of conscious beings can inform each other.
1: Mm. That was great. Thank you. Um, thank you. Yeah. And I, I one time was, uh, at something in New York with uh, Gellick Rinpoche, great Tibetan teacher who's gone now. And um, some, I can't remember who it was, oh, but anyhow, he'd just written a best-selling tech science book. And um, they were talking about a reincarnation and artificial intelligence, machines, they were calling them then. So this um, uh, scientist said to, Gellick was talking about what he thought you, um, whether you could come back as a machine, as a computer. Um, and uh, he was saying, Well, it would be the consciousness of you know, um, and so this person said, Um, you mean I could come back as a computer? And he said, Well, if anybody's going to, it'll be you. <laughs> I think, I think that guy spent the rest of his career trying to figure that one out. But that'd be a good thing to talk about sometime with Buddhism and, and AI. So I hope I come back and, and am able to witness some of the things that you guys are um, imagining. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you both. Really. This was Thank you. Thank really you very wonderful. It was for me and I'm sure it will be for others who listen. I just know. So thank you and I'll be in touch soon.
2: Take care. Thank Bye. you.